I remember uh, in college, every semester, at the beginning of every class, uh, the professor would hand the students uh, something called a syllabus. Anybody know what a syllabus is? You've seen one of those things before. Uh, It's a written description of the class, and it's got the the purpose of the class and a lot of language, blah, 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 about the things I didn't care about at the time. I care about them now for sure, right? But, uh, But at the back of the syllabus was something very useful. At the back of the syllabus was all of the years, uh, the semester's assignments, when they were due, uh, what they were, how much they were worth and as far as your grade, and, uh, and so that was good, but uh, I didn't know it. Many students never caught on to this their whole college career, that the, all the assignments were already there. Um, but I had a girlfriend who was an A-plus student, and she, uh, she told me about it, and she spent a lot of time in the library, and so did I. Um, and so I learned about this, this trick you could do. What, what I did each semester um, is the first week of each year after we attended all of our classes and got all of my syllabi, uh, that is the plural for syllabuses, I looked it up. <clears throat> I would take all the syllabi, get all the assignments, and I'd map them out on a calendar for the semester. It took a while, but it was pretty satisfying getting all, that thing, all those things out. The problem was, it wasn't just satisfying, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't just satisfying, it was also very overwhelming to get all of those assignments at once in that small period of time. When you take four months of papers and books that you have to read, quizzes and tests and projects you had to do, and you put them all together at one time, uh, the calendar is packed and, and before it all begins, you're just ready to quit because there's, there's, uh, there's just too much for the road ahead. Um, have you ever had the feeling in a stage of your life where uh, what you have to give is not enough for the road ahead? I felt like that uh, in college. I felt like many times in my life. I felt like that when I got married. I felt like that when I became a father. I felt like that when I started working and when I started preaching here uh, and uh, many other different places. And honestly, that feeling really hasn't gone away it's, uh, it just kind of sits here with me. It's like my little buddy that just walks around with me, and it's like what you have is not enough for uh, what's coming. Um, feeling like, you, like what you have is not enough, whether it's you as a person or money or time or talents or resources or opportunities. I think this is a universal, uh, a universal experience, the, the overwhelming feeling that what I have in my hands is not enough for the road ahead. I think Jesus knows us really well. And if we decide to follow the way of Jesus, he's got something to help us. And I think uh, the scripture that we're going to look at today is going to help. It's a unique scripture that we're looking at because today we're looking at the only story of Jesus, other than the, the crucifixion and the last week of Jesus, this is the only story that all four gospel writers chose to put in their writing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all wrote about the crucifixion in the last week. But only one story did all four of them tell outside of that. Now, I don't know why this is the only one that they recounted. Uh, However, that fact alone makes me interested. What was it about this story? Like, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, and all four gospel writers chose this story to teach us about... And I want to dig into it. Each gospel writer chose to insert their own... They use the story in different ways in their biography of Jesus with their own points to make. Mark, when he uses it, he highlights the compassion of Jesus. 
When John tells this story, he's talking about the power and, and the, the provision of Jesus. Matthew uses this, this story as kind of a contrast to talk about the ways of Jesus versus the ways of the sinful world. And so there's obviously different lessons that we can gather and, and decide why did all four tell us this story. But we're going to be reading what John says. John tells of this moment in Jesus' life that obviously left an impact on all of them. It is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Let's see why they wrote about this after we pray. God, we thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. Teach us through your word. Help us to understand uh, your ways and to walk in them. Encourage us this morning, God. As we go from here and to face the world ahead of us. Lead us through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Today when we get to our scripture, we find ourselves on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It starts in John chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. I'm stop right there. Not much has been said, right? But actually, there's, there's more there than you realize. There's sometimes the, the author, when they're about to tell a story, they'll tell some details that if you're not careful, you'll just read right past it and it won't really give you the context that they're intending to give you. Why is John wasting his words here to tell us what time it is? Just get to the story, right? You know, he says that it's during the time or near the time of the Jewish Passover. Well, clearly, it, it was something important, important to him. He didn't waste words as he wrote things out. He didn't have a word count he had to get to. Uh, and and it, it's actually very important to this story. It's important to us. And just in case you're not aware, for them, being near the time of the Jewish Passover, for Jews, Passover was, was kind of like the, the 4th of July is for us, except, you know, 10 times as, as greater. Like every year, for the last 1,500 years, they would take time aside to celebrate their escape from Egypt. You read about that in the book of Exodus, the second book of our Bible. Uh, the Exodus was a, a crucial time in Jewish history when God rescued his people from slavery. That's, you know, with Moses and all that. You remember when they escaped Egypt. And so the, festival, the Passover festival was this week-long celebration to God they were remembering that, that time in their history, remembering God's faithfulness. They would gather together, travel down to Jerusalem. They would uh, reenact symbolically the events of their rescue and reflect on God's character. And they've been doing that for, you know, 1,500 years. So all of that to say, because John clues us into this, this time frame, that festival is near. And what that means for Israel is that this nation is booming with Traffic, people traveling, pilgrimages, pilgrims from uh, all around are traveling up to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice, to celebrate their, their liberation uh, and the road they'd be traveling down from the directions up north. They would all be funneling through this area where Jesus was teaching and performing miracles. And so there was this, a lot of people coming through this area have you ever driven through an area and uh, you'd heard rumors about a particular uh, site that you need to stop by? If you ever drive by such and such, stop here and see this site. Maybe it was something that's always there or a restaurant or something like that. 
Uh, or maybe you're going through a city and you just happen to know there's a celebrity in town, like a comedian or an artist or a sports team. And so you hear about that and you swing in there and you see them as, uh, as they're there. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. The rumor, bill, the rumor mill about Jesus and what he's been doing lately is very strong. And so these circumstances kind of come together in this place. And there's, so there's no wonder on this day we've got this huge crowd of people because of all the travelers that are accumulating here, and they've heard about Jesus. Now, let's talk about that crowd. Let's consider the tone of this gathering. This crowd that would have been traveling and gathering here is a loyal group. Let's call them patriotic Jews who are on their way to celebrate one of the most treasured moments in their history. But their, their nation is not doing too hot right now, not in their mind. They're, they're far from where they were at their peak. They are Jewish, but, but they're not in charge of their nation. They, guess who's in charge of their nation? I mean, you may know that Rome is actually in charge of their nation. Now, I, I can't get into the psyche of everybody and their brains in this crowd, but studying their beliefs and their attitudes during this time, they were not satisfied with this arrangement as, as a nation and with Rome. In fact, the Jews were waiting. They were, they were longing for and hoping for a day when a Messiah would come and restore Israel to their former glory and to reclaim the throne of David like it was in the past. Um, that would be their demeanor every day. That's what they would hope for every day. But imagine this gathering and this time of year, uh, this intense uh, patriotism surrounding Passover. Plus, we're talking about a crowd of people in that same mindset. 10, 15,000 people gathering in this area with a similar mindset and attitude collectively of having this overwhelming state of things in their country, the grim state of this country. And they looked in their hands how they would ever change that. And it's not enough. In their current position, they had no power. Militarily, they had no economic ability to overcome this. They, they had no influence to be free for themselves. Um, so every Passover, they were looking for, they were hoping for what the Jews called a Messiah. To help them overcome the burden of the Romans. A Messiah to be God's anointed and carry out his will and rescue them and send them to victory. And so that's, a lot of, that's just a small verse that we read, right? But it's a lot of context and a little bit of verses. And maybe that helps you understand why there's such a big crowd here right now. And why they'd be so interested in what they've heard about Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. It's a large crowd here. Not sure exactly why Philip was the guy who got put on the spot, but uh, John says here, as he writes, he says it's a, it was a test. It's an interesting test because I think we would all kind of get to the same answer pretty quickly here. If we saw this crowd, in a second we're going to read that there's 5,000 men in this crowd, which doesn't even account for the rest of the family. And so if conservatively we just said maybe each family had also a wife and one child, we could easily assume that there might be upwards of 15,000 people in this crowd right now. And so, hey, where are we going to get enough bread for this crowd? The answer is going to be 
fairly easy to come to, we're going we're gonna to say there's, there's not enough bread. There's no way we're going to get bread for this crowd. And so maybe as far as a test, this was a test to see what Philip was going to say. Maybe it's not giving a direct answer like find us this bread, but maybe it's something deeper here and he's got to think a little bit more or uh, you know, find some wisdom in here. Philip did answer though. He said, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. A half a year's wages for each one to have a bite. I don't think Philip passes the test. Neither would I, to be fair. Uh, it looks like Philip, he's, sounds like he's got a mind for numbers because he pretty quickly calculates here the cost alone would be overwhelming. They don't have this kind of money anyway. For a crowd this size, for each one to have one bite would have been more than a half a year's paycheck. Not even a meal, right? Let alone the logistics of the you know, cooking or serving or whatever that, to get it there. Uh, in verse 8, it says, Another disciple... Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they, will they go among so many? And to me, this is where the story tar- starts to take a, a little bit of an odd twist. Another disciple, Andrew, comes up, brings a boy over who has like five dinner rolls and two sardines with him. Or, we're not talking about like big loaves of bread, if, you know, wonder breads. It, I mean, it is going to be wonder bread, but it's, it's, a, it's not, it, it's, we're not talking big loaves and large fish. This is a young boy's lunchbox coming up here. And I said that I think this is where it takes an odd twist, because when you read this, don't get too, like, uh, out of your brain. Like, this, this is silly, Right? This is ridiculous to come up here. We want to feed a, fi- uh, a crowd of maybe 15,000 people and you bring me a lunchbox? Common sense is like, get out of here with your lunchbox. But Andrew brings this pitiful meal. I guess it's all he could find. And I, I don't know that it's because he had a lot of faith. Because listen to what he says. He says, I don't think this is going to go very far. <laughs> you think, Andrew, good observation. Now, remember... This is a story that all four gospel writers chose to include in their writings. So I don't, I don't, for the record, I don't buy into the notion that this story is somehow just like a made-up story. That it's some kind of parable that didn't really happen, but it teaches a lesson. Um, what happens next is crazy. It's so out of the normal, it's miraculous, and it's taught, it taught something. These writers, all four of them, it teaches something about Jesus that they had to pass on to the next generation. You see, these disciples saw the situation. They did some math. And here's their, their logical thinking. They said, five loaves. Have you got any mathematicians here? Five plus two divided by 5,000 equals not enough. Right? That was their math. Five loaves, two, like, Jesus, it, it doesn't add up. We, we, what we have in our hand is not enough for the task ahead. And every human on earth understands this feeling at some point in their life. Every person can relate, can relate to this feeling. What I have is not enough for, for what's ahead. And you might think that every morning. You wake up and you look at the day ahead and you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't, gotta, I don't have it. 
I don't have enough to get through today. You look at your bank account and then you look at your bills and you're like, it's not going to work. I don't have enough. You as a person, as a, as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, or a, you know, whether you're single or divorced or transitioning in life, it's like what I have in my abilities and my resources is not enough for what I've got to do. As a son or daughter, whether you're tackling life's challenges or you're starting a career, you're trying to reach a goal, what I have in my hands is not enough. And so we listen to Philip and we listen to Andrew and we're like, I hear you, man. I know that this is the wrong answer. I know that I'm failing the test, but I don't know how to do the math any other way. I don't have enough to get through life without this addiction. I don't know how to provide for my family the money that they need and keep my integrity. I don't know how to follow the ways of Jesus and survive in this world. Because what I have in my hands is not enough for the road ahead. The crowd that Jesus was in front of, they want a Messiah. Collectively, as a nation, they, they're overwhelmed with, with where they are and where they want to be is not seemingly possible. And every year at Passover, they look for deliverance from their situation. Again, you, you see, like, Israel is, even though they're down in Jerusalem, there's a lot of corruption and they've got a lot of things wrong. One thing that they had going for them is that they did know their history. They, they knew the history of, of God and the Israelites. They had seen consistently that God shows up and against the odds, tips the scales for them. And his will is uh, carried out, rescues them against the odds. And so they're looking for a Messiah to, to do that again, to change the math. And so they got that going for them, some of them. Now, watch, watch what happens in uh, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they, they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had all, uh, when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather these pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So this is the miracle that all four gospel writers chose to share. Why do you suppose we are we're skeptical of this story having happened? I mean, just for a second, like it, if, you, if we're able to block out the skepticism or whatever alternate explanation we have to consider this a real miracle of Jesus, why is it hard to believe? I'll tell you why. Because you can't feed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. The math doesn't add up. It's ridiculous. I've been to a lot of potluck dinners. And there's been plenty of them where I didn't think we had enough for the amount of people who were there. But there was, right? However, I have never considered it a miracle. Maybe, maybe better portion control was part of the answer to that, but I've never thought of it as a miracle. But feeding 15,000 people with so little in your hand 
It's either a myth or Jesus changes the math. I think one, Jesus was te- one thing Jesus was teaching his disciples is that the way of Jesus is the way of enough. The way of Jesus is the way of enough. And here's how the math changes. We had five loaves, two fish. When you put Christ in front of this equation, he multiplies what's in our hand. And then it's able to divide about what we need to to accomplish. What we have is multiplied to be more than enough. It's interesting that all four gospel wrote and talked about this story. Maybe they were like me. The four of them who wrote this, and, and maybe they're like you, kind of needing this message, overwhelmed by life and what needs to happen, and, and seeing clearly that I don't have enough. Knowing that, they, that we needed to read this, that eventually we're going to pick up on the fact that at a certain point in, in life, we hit this reality, and you come to realize that I am falling short. I'm not invincible. I, I can't do anything I put my mind to. Eventually, we clue into that human limitation that we have in life, no matter how many posters we put on our wall. But these gospel writers share with us, you know what, that's true. We, we don't have enough, but it's okay. Because Jesus changes everything. He can take a simple five loaves and two fish, and Jesus can multiply what we've got what I have as a man, a woman, as a friend, as a neighbor, add Jesus to your overwhelming life and you have more than enough. I think that's a great lesson for us. But I'm not quite ready to quit because I want to go back to the crowd. It's not, it's not quite that simple that you'll have more than you need. All right. Obviously, word spreads in the crowd about what Jesus has done. I doubt everybody in a crowd that big had front row seats. And so maybe it starts spreading through the crowd what's happened here. And they check out what, how, what they did with that message, with this miracle, and how they took it. In verse 14, it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They were so impressed with what Jesus had done that they wanted to make him king right now. Crazy, it says that that they intended to do this by force. And I don't even know what that would look like, but just imagine this invigorated, patriotic crowd, what a mob mentality might do in a situation like this. And they were excited. You know, this isn't an angry forcing him. It was like, they're excited. God sent us the Messiah. let's, Let's make him king. Seems like the obvious step here. Well, Jesus doesn't want this. He ducks out of the crowd and he ends up for the next few verses, spending some time with his disciples, performing some miracles. But it says a little bit further down, it says that this crowd that he fed a couple of days later, they kind of went along the shoreline to find Jesus because he went on a boat, or they did, and, and uh, they found him a couple of days later. They weren't ready to give up on this idea that they planned to make him king. They went around, they found him again, and listen to how Jesus ag- addresses this crowd again. I'm not sure that it's like all 15,000, but there's a good group of them that found him. Jesus answered them, he said, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me. 
Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They came up looking for him, asking for bread. Feed us again. He said, you're following me here. You're looking for me. You found me because I gave you bread. And in this interesting, and I think it's a good follow-up for the disciples and for us, the crowd, it's obvious that they were overwhelmed because of how quickly they jumped on this hope of Jesus being the Messiah. They see his power and quickly their enthusiasm just shows us how desperate they are, that how much they were waiting for this. They found they were pursuing him as Messiah to make him king. But why did they want him to be their Messiah? Because he could give them bread. Now I'm going to give this crowd the benefit of the doubt. And instead of calling them stupid or selfish or anything like that, I'm just going to call them naive. Probably because it's, they remind me of myself and I want to be gentle. They're naive, maybe like a child who's not mature enough to understand the deeper lessons. They saw Jesus' power and they thought, yes, yes, this will benefit me. This will benefit us. And we're thinking, like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, isn't that what we do? We're like, don't, don't we, when we get overwhelmed with life, we just go to God because of what he can do this for me. Do this for me and ask and you, he said, ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open for you. Isn't that what Jesus said? And why, why is he, is he kind of backtracking here? They want bread. They're asking. The thing is, they're not just asking for bread. But they're asking him to use his power to be their king. Come, let's, let's make you king so you can benefit us with this power. You could benefit us in so many ways. Is that why Jesus came? To be king? Is that, is that the way of enough? I'll be your king and you'll never want for anything ever again. Can you imagine when Jesus kind of approaches them like this and gives that response? Maybe they're like, well... Yeah, isn't that what the Messiah is supposed to be? Come serve us. Come come do this for us. What does it mean to have enough? When I'm saying that when you put God in your equation, Jesus in your equation, you'll have more than enough. What does that mean? Whether it's money or time or patience or talents, when what's in our hand is not enough, and I'm telling you that you put Jesus in this equation and it's going to be more than enough. What does that mean? What does it look like to have enough? Well, to this crowd, it was more money, obviously. More time, more bread, more talents, more influence, more power. If I have more, then eventually I'll have enough. That's what they wanted from the Messiah. They wanted more. But listen. More does not equal enough. Sometimes when we like, yeah, add Jesus to the equation, I'll have enough. And we're thinking more. That's, that's what this crowd was thinking. I want more bread. More does not equal enough. 
It doesn't matter how much more you have, it will never be enough. And so we've got to be careful as we approach Jesus as our Messiah that we don't treat him like some kind of more machine. In fact, I think the pursuit of more is really not the pursuit of Jesus. It's the pursuit of self. They wanted bread. And if you keep reading in the story, they had some more talking with him. One of the things they said is they said, Jesus, always give us bread. In verse 34, always give us bread. Seems like a very sincere and and they were very genuine in this. But Jesus declared to them, he said, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The question is, could they take the time to wrestle with that in their life, figure out what that means? They were thinking of Moses in the desert. God, for, for a long time, God sent manna from heaven, bread, right? Manna is bread, out of thin air and fed the Israelites in the desert for 40 years they're like, do that again. We want more bread. In other words, always give us bread. Take care of us. Provide for us. Jesus, Jesus just wants them to stop talking about bread. I am the bread. In other words, I am enough. You see, when I don't have enough, and I'm in that phase in life, I can't get out of my head, all I can see is what I don't have in my hands. All that Philip and Andrew could see is what they didn't have in that lunchbox. All the crowd could see is the more that they wanted. You see, when they wanted Jesus to give them more bread, the thing about bread is bread is temporary. I'll give you bread today, but you know what? Tomorrow, you're going to be hungry. That's the thing about the things in this world that we feel like I need more of The physical things, that's our flesh. When we think about having enough, many times we're just thinking about the things of our flesh, of this physical life. Listen, God will take care of you, and it's not like the physical is unimportant. He gave them bread because he loved them. Actually, Mark, when he tells the story, talks about the compassion of Jesus and how he was concerned that they were fed He gave them bread. He'll give us bread. But so long as we are stuck on looking at our hands and focused only on the physical, those things that spoil, we will never learn this lesson. The lesson that all four Gospels, I think, wanted to pass down to us, that the way of Jesus is the way of enough and offers you something that is eternal, that never spoils, that satisfies so you hear a lesson like that, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to wrestle with it. Because you, you look down at your hands, this is, you know, I'm just speaking for myself. I look down at my hands, and after hearing that, I'm like, but, but I'm still hungry. I, I know that feeling. Walking the way of Jesus, it's a journey for us. We're, where we allow a teaching like this to mold us over time. To mature into this. I wish that I could simply hear a story like this. And learn the lesson. And immediately it just flips a switch. And my character turns to like perfectly follow this way of life. But I'm still weak. And so I've got to let this kind of wisdom from Jesus mold me. So I want to encourage you. Let's take some time this week to allow the, the Holy Spirit to teach us. What does it mean to have enough? And we can say a prayer. 
Like, Jesus, you are the bread of life. And if I can understand that, I'll never hunger, I'll never thirst again. Teach me what that means, that you are enough. Let's look for that this week. Pray with me.